1: Hey, and welcome to The Short Stuff. I'm Josh. There's Chuck. There's Bill Gates. No time to explain. This is Short Stuff. Let's get to it. Go. <laughs> uh,
0: thanks for coming back and joining us, Bill, uh, to talk about COVID and vaccines and therapeutics. And, uh, you know, we've got a short window here, so let's dive right in. And uh, I guess my first question is, let's just kind of level set and find out where we are with vaccines and how it all works with multiple vaccines being worked on and how that kind of goes in the end.
2: Well, there's fortunately a lot of different vaccine constructs using uh, most of the approaches that we know. And as we get these out in larger human studies and eventually have a human uh, emergency youth authorization, we'll start to understand for the various candidates how much they prevent disease transmission, how much they prevent how often you get sick, whether they work in the elderly and what type of duration they have. And so there'll be quite a range on those parameters for these vaccines. You know, eventually we want one that's both very good at transmission blocking and preventing sickness and has duration and is cheap so that we get out to a large part of the entire global population and bring the pandemic to an end.
1: One of the things that you you um, brought up, though, is that we want like all of these different factors that make basically like a perfect vaccine. Um, but I read one of your posts on uh, your Gates Notes blogs, and you said that that's probably not going to happen right out of the gate. Is there a benefit from having multiple vaccines kind of working in conjunction, or is it the best route to just kind of keep going after that that magic perfect vaccine that that works as close to perfect as we can get?
2: Well, particularly for the developing countries, we won't be able to afford to go out a whole lot of times. And so, uh, you know, the the U.S. has funded a lot of the R&D. Our foundation and a group we're part of called CEPI has also funded R&D, but well less than what the U.S. itself has done. And that's got a really good pipeline. You know, the AstraZeneca probably will come out first then Johnson & Johnson, then Novavax, then Sanofi. Those are the four that are most promising because they're, they're clearly low cost. Moderna and Pfizer are in that same time frame, but probably pretty expensive and may only end up being used in rich countries.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the, it's a question of affordability, not necessarily efficacy.
2: Yeah, well, of the six, the likelihood that they all work without side effects is pretty low. Now the phase one studies, that's pretty small numbers and you're not going out to find sick people, but there you can see what the antibody response looks like. And if you use some very advanced tools, you can look at the other side of the immune system, the T cell side, and try and gauge what type of responses you're getting there. And I have to say that all these vaccines look pretty good You know, the Novavax, which just came out this week, has the best numbers, but, uh, you know, this kind of respiratory disease protecting your lungs is easier than many other (laughs) vaccination tasks like uh, malaria or HIV or, or TB.
0: So, I mean, I hate to keep harping on the multiple vaccine thing, but are we looking at a situation in six, eight months to a year where families are going to have to research which one works best or is it sort of a regional availability or monetary availability how will that work
2: well certainly in the united states the government will have a clear opinion about the first one it's rolling out and you know if that first vaccine adds enough transmission blocking then you, what you have is you have whatever previous protection we get from other coronavirus uh, family viruses and the immunity we get from the natural infection for this coronavirus plus whoever we vaccinate. And so between those three, you can get up to herd immunity where the total number of cases is very small pretty quickly, probably adding... 20, 25% of the U.S. population to the vaccinated would do that. And so that's, you know, 70 million people to be vaccinated. And almost all these vaccines, unfortunately, are going to require two doses. So that's 140 million doses. The various uh, efforts are building their factories in parallel, at least with the scale for the United States. We're trying to make sure factories get built for the entire world, which is, you know, the U.S. is only 5% of the world's population, so that's a 20 times harder problem. And the rest of the world's not as rich, so getting enough money is is very difficult. The U.S. is one of the countries where you could decide to go with the first-generation vaccine and then decide that its efficacy was limited enough that you would, four months later, uh say no now you also need to go and get this vaccine after all you know the economic damage we're trying to put an end to is trillions and trillions Mm -hmm. and you know making these vaccines and deploying them assuming there's no side effects uh that's just billions so you know it's it's highly leveraged uh investment
1: you, you. I mean, you kind of mentioned that, you know, we also need to be focusing on other parts of the world too, uh, low and middle income countries um, who can't necessarily afford to throw billions of dollars at this problem. Um, how, how do we help other countries and other human beings that just don't happen to live in the United States or Canada or the UK or Australia? How do we help them? Is it just a, a matter of direct aid? Is it a matter of sharing research? Is it a matter of just pumping out a bunch of doses and and shipping them over there? Or is it a thing where if we in the United States pay a bunch of money for a vaccine that's going to make it that much more likely for the pharma companies to sell it for low or no cost to other countries?
2: What's the economics of that? Yeah, typically the vaccine companies for the poorest countries, developing countries that a group called Gavi, that we support and U.S. government and other governments support, it does the buying uh, for these poor countries. The vaccine manufacturers agree that they're not getting any profit, nor are they getting any recovery for their fixed costs, their R&D and trial type costs. They're just getting uh, close to that marginal cost. And that makes sense because they're, they're not giving up something they would get otherwise. And so all these manufacturers will have tiered pricing. The price to the rich countries, middle-income countries, and the poorest countries will be different. Uh, some of the companies have agreed to make no profit. So when they price to the rich and the middle income, they'll just recover their fixed costs. In uh, the poor countries, it's just that, that marginal cost. A number of these constructs look like they'll be around $2 per dose uh, oh, yeah. perhaps even less. Uh, yeah, many of these constructs are very productive, including the adenovirus, which is uh, AstraZeneca and J&J, mm-hmm. and the subunit protein, which is uh, includes Novavax and the Sanofi approaches. The RNA platform, which you can think I'm kind of leaving that out, you know, in the long run, we're very enthusiastic about that because the speed of development and having generic factories, even when you don't know which pathogen you're going after, will work very well for that. So we've been funding that for about a decade. Unfortunately, it's in terms of scaling up the manufacturing and a portion of it called the lipid, the costs are still higher than these other approaches. So for the the big world, I doubt those vaccines uh, which includes Moderna and, and Pfizer uh, BioNTech I doubt they'll they'll
1: play much of a role. And and what you're talking about just now <clears throat> you you were talking about different types of vaccines that are being tested. So there's an RNA vaccine that Moderna's working on that um, is, has never a vaccine's never been produced using RNA, right? That's um, right. This would be the first one. Can you can you just talk a little bit about how a, an RNA vaccine differs from, you know, say, an adenovirus uh, vaccine or or even a flu uh, vaccine? Well, RNA
2: is the name of these molecules that are like the software code that tell your cells what uh, proteins to manufacture. And, you know, so the the software idea here is that instead of actually sending the particles for the immune system to recognize and get ready to attack, you actually send some lines of instructions, the RNA, that tell your own cells to make that protein. And then once they make it, then the immune system sees that. And so the amount of RNA you need to send could be uh, way smaller, because the instructions are smaller than the actual proteins themselves. Now, we still have to package up the RNA to get it inside the cells, and that creates some cost. That's the so-called lipid. But the Mm -hmm. basic idea uh, is really brilliant. And in the future of vaccines, uh, this will be a critical way to make vaccines because the speed and the cost will get figured out. And you'll just have these general factories, whether it's uh, for malaria or cancer vaccines. And so it's great. Moderna and BioNTech, CureVac, these are companies that were founded Uh, based on using that particular approach.
1: Well, let's take a, a quick break, everybody, and we will be right back with Bill Gates. 300,000 plus travel experiences to choose from means you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy.
0: That's right. You can also enjoy real traveler reviews to get insider information from people who've already been on the experience that you're considering. Plus, you get free cancellation that helps you plan for the unexpected.
1: Yeah, and Viator offers 24-7 customer service, so you know you'll get support at any hour if things aren't going as planned. So download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find the perfect travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: How closely, and I I think the answer I want to hear is that we've never seen a response like this uh, as far as sharing of research, but how closely... Mm -hmm. Is the international research community working together, and have we seen anything like this?
2: No, it's quite novel. Um, And what we're going to have is the company who invents a vaccine is going to allow other companies to use their factories to do the manufacture, so we scale up very quickly to this billions of doses, and that's never been done before. And so we're our foundation, because we have a lot of that expertise, people who spent their careers at these private sector companies, we're able to broker through our relationships with the companies and the governments uh, how that works. So, for example, two of the companies in India have big capacity, uh, but they're unlikely to invent one of these vaccines. But Serum and BioE are these two companies And so we're giving money to them and making sure the licensing and cooperation is such that they can latch on to whichever of the other companies' work looks promising and be there to to make a lot of the volume. So, yes, I'm very pleased with the cooperation. We didn't practice for this the way we should have, uh, either the governments or the private sector, but... uh, you know, my days are mostly those conversations, which everybody has a good attitude. Uh, you know, very few people are being greedy about this. Most are being willing to do things in a, a very novel, high-speed way.
0: Now, just to follow up on that, it seems to me as an optimist that that could present a new way forward for humanity, for things uh, to work together on things that aren't necessarily... Uh, COVID-19 related, is uh, is that naive and foolish, or, or could this be a good opportunity for something like that?
2: Well, it's a little bit naive in that the economic imperative of a coronavirus vaccine is a stronger market signal than you've ever seen for any disease. It's costing economies trillions of dollars. It's, you know, the U.S. alone has put out already $3 trillion in relief money, and they're talking about additional trillions. And so the net gain from bringing this epidemic to an end in economic terms is very clear, whereas a lot of the diseases we need vaccines for are just in poor countries, are mostly in poor countries, where the rich countries like tuberculosis or malaria is basically not seen In any rich country. So, there the economic imperative isn't great, and that's where our foundation, uh, you know, for HIV, we in the US governments are the big funders for for malaria. We're the big funder. There is no market signal. And, you know, in a way, it's terrible that this disease hit the rich world, but whenever somebody in the rich world gets sick, wow, then, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. resources are put into play in a way that is. You know, just incredible.
1: So, um, I should—I feel like I should probably preface this, but there are some people. You may not be aware of this. There are some people who are wary of vaccines, <laughs> and um, there, there's a possibility that some people might feel wariness toward a COVID um, vaccine, in particular, because everything is is being stepped up. Uh, as quickly as possible. Um, and one of the things that I've run into is this idea that um, it, it might not even work, that you know, sometimes you go in for a flu vaccine and you still get the flu that year. Um, can you kind of talk about how, how that differs and how it would be um, more effective than say like your average flu vaccine, how the two are different? Yeah, there's two problems
2: with the flu vaccine. One is that there are multiple varieties of flu that circulate. And as you get into flu season, we try by going to China, where most flus originate, to sample what's there and make uh, a two or three component seasonal flu vaccine. But we often miss the strain that uh, is most prevalent during the season. And the way those flu vaccines are made, they're not very effective in elderly people. And that's really bad because the flu mostly kills old people, very mm-hmm. similar in the age profile to COVID. And so here we are in the trials for this vaccine, making sure it works well in old people, because otherwise the sickness protection thing is almost useless. Mm-hmm. Uh, but flu is very difficult, it's constantly emerging in new forms and reassorting. This disease, there's one target. The genetic variation is very, very minor. Uh, so the vaccine will be able to target every coronavirus that we've seen. And once we get rid of it, it won't be crossing over into humans on a regular basis. Uh, you know, we, we could go a long, long time before we would ever see it again. And then we'll have surveillance and catch it uh, when it's small numbers.
0: Now, you know, it's important to talk about vaccines. I think that's the sort of uh, carrot dangling in front of the world. Uh, But what about therapeutics? I know that's something that we don't hear enough of probably in the news. Uh, where, Where are we with therapeutics and where can we go with therapeutics? Well,
2: the doctors are way better at treating COVID patients now than at the start. They're not as overloaded. They realize that you don't use the ventilator nearly as much because it has bad side effects. They use oxygen earlier. They use the prone position. Um, the two drugs that are being used, remdesivir, which is an antiviral, and dexamethasone, which was proven out in a trial we funded in the UK, is a immune uh, modulator. There are two other antivirals that uh, are actually as promising as remdesivir and actually Could be used orally, which is uh, much easier. There's monoclonal antibodies where uh, dozens of companies are working on that. But Regeneron, Eli Lilly, and AstraZeneca have the three that are uh, leading the way there. And you know, by the time we get more antivirals, monoclonal antibodies, and some improved immune modulators, we could cut the death rate by 80 to 90 percent, and Testing uh, therapeutics is easier because you just take a you know a few hundred sick people, and if you're going to have substantial results, you you, you know a hundred get the intervention, a hundred don't, uh, you'll see you know significant uh, variance between those. And so yes, the death rate will come down quite a bit well before we get the vaccine out in the large numbers to stop dropping the case numbers.
1: That's great. Um, Bill, you kind of referenced uh, a point in time that is on everyone's mind, but I think seems kind of amorphous, which is the, the point where we have a viable vaccine and good treatments. What is the world with coronavirus look like after that? Does it just like disappear? Does it hit a reservoir? Does it come back seasonally? What What is what is it going to look like? And then how far off are we from that goal of of, of reaching that, that world?
2: If we get this cheap vaccine um, and it's not only safe, but everybody uh, knows that it's safe. So they're willing mm-hmm. in large numbers to take the vaccine. And if we get the generosity that the rich countries are, along with our foundation, are funding the vaccine so it's uh, uh, available even in the developing countries, we can truly bring this thing to an end where it won't be coming back. Uh, You'll get rid of all the pockets the disease are in. You'll be willing to go to big public events and then we'll monitor to see if it if something similar is crossing over and catch that very quickly, we might not hang around with bats quite as much uh, <laughs> as we do now in uh, these live markets where uh, this crossover almost certainly took place. But you know, I'm I'm spending a lot of time getting the U.S. to provide money to help buy the vaccine for other countries. Historically, the U.S. has been super generous. You know, we we drove smallpox eradication. We fund the polio effort that's near to completion on HIV and malaria. We've been super generous. Here, the leadership has been distracted and not wanting to talk about the epidemic. So we haven't gotten the money yet. But I'm I'm optimistic that'll get solved
1: by the Congress. Because it's hitting both people, it's hitting both the bleeding hearts who care about human lives, and it's hitting both the hard cases who care about the bottom line, huh? It, it, it That's has right. something for the, everybody.
2: The humanitarian argument, the strategic argument of not creating a vacuum for China and others, and the selfish argument of, hey, we don't want it coming back again and again. You know, Countries like Australia or South Korea that did a competent job, even they have found it hard that everybody who's coming into the country potentially can start up a chain of infection again. So, uh, you know, they're doing great, but they have to keep fighting and fighting and, and doing local shutdowns, whereas if, if the, the rest of the world had done what they've done, you know, they, they could go and, and have their economy in a normal state.
0: Yeah, you know, you mentioned the live markets and uh, the crossover and sort of the the problems with that. What um, what does that future look like, and what can we do about it as Americans? Are we working with China? Are they willing to close these things down? Like, how is all that going to work?
2: Yeah, the a lot of species of bats are there south of Wuhan uh, and you know, the cross-protection from related coronaviruses may explain why Vietnam, although they've certainly done a good job, you know, they just had their first death. And so coronaviruses do come out, and if you're looking with modern tools, you'll see it when the numbers are very small. So those, uh, you know, making sure the exposures to bats are reduced, reduced and that the surveillance is very strong, and then once you see meaningful spread, then kicking up a sort of what I call mega testing diagnostic capability. That is all very doable. And and so we won't suffer from a coronavirus being widespread like this again. We will really have our act together for a pretty modest level of resources.
1: Chuck, I have one last question. Do you have any any more?
0: Uh, I got one more, but you go first.
1: Okay, well well my bill was um and I'm presuming here I hope I'm not overly presuming that it's okay for me to call you Bill. Sure. At this point, okay, sure. I probably should have verified that before. But um what I think people are there's like an inherent suspicion or suspiciousness that I think people can can kind of uh, lean towards when they encounter a mind-bogglingly wealthy person who um, wants to help eradicate disease around the world and uses their money for that end. Um, so, what is it that that interested you? That kind of took you from, you know, uh, pioneering computers to pioneering eradicating disease around the world. What was that? Was that Melinda's influence? Was that something that you've always been interested in? What, what, what's the deal? Well, like your listeners,
2: I I'm curious to understand things, and so as I was, uh, starting to wind down, uh, and spend a little bit less time on my Microsoft work. Uh, I was reading, I was thinking, okay, how can I give this wealth back to society? Uh, and I was learning about what kills children. And I was stunned that there were diseases that we had solutions for, we had vaccines for, but, uh, millions would die of those diseases because, they weren't affordable to the poor countries, even though the, the cost of manufacture was very, very low. And so I saw that Melinda and I could focus on global health and get the death rate down, which amazingly and counterintuitively reduces population growth because parents, when they know their kids are likely to survive, have less children. And so that quest, you know, which involved creating this gobby, organization to help buy the vaccines. Overall, the under-5 death rate has gone from 10% now down to about 5% globally. Wow! And, you know, so that's, you know, that's mind-blowing. It was over 10 million children a year, now less than, than 5 million a year. And we have a clear path with a few new vaccines to get down to 2.5 million, uh, so 2.5%. Uh, and even rich countries are close to 1%, so you're getting pretty close to the kind of equity that any child born anywhere, their life is treated as having value. Now, on this journey, you you know, I've gotten to learn about the immune system and meet great scientists, and so I love the work. Uh, you know, it gives purpose to how we take the Microsoft money and get it back out to the world, uh, because we don't need it for our consumption, and you know, so this work in partnership with Melinda has been a a great joy to me.
0: Uh, so I guess in finishing up, I mean, you know, you've been pretty busy being Bill Gates superhero during this time. Uh, I'm curious though, about, you know, you've been locked down like the rest of us. What's, what has Bill Gates human being been doing? Have you had any fun? What have you guys been doing? What have you been up to? Well, you know, in a way,
2: uh, I don't know what the kids think, but we've got more time with our kids than we would have <laughs> expected, including uh, one that's at medical school, one that's uh, at University of Chicago in college. And so, you know, lots of family game nights. Uh, you know, I'm using the team software from Microsoft and Zoom and, and some of the others. And so I'm giving a lot of feedback to the Microsoft team that now this this <laughs> has become so mainstream. Let's make it easy to take notes and review the slides and <laughs> search through a previous meeting uh, to see what was done. you know so the rate of innovation on the software will be upped quite a bit uh you know it's been simple for me to meet with leaders because they don't expect to show that you're serious that you have to fly all the way there, and even mm. for these African leaders they're they're the most stuck. They have to fly to the U.S. and fly to Europe. So they're they're able to stay in their countries and get more of their work done. Uh, so, you know, how once it's all over, we realize, wow, some of those trips, uh, our time in the office wasn't necessary. That is pretty fascinating that it's really accelerated rethinking office work and business travel uh, and you know, we, we really can uh, save a lot of the overhead from those things. But, you know, I, I've gotten to read more than normal, uh, you know, less jet lag than normal. Uh, any,
1: any particular books that you've been that you've, you've enjoyed most?
2: Uh, you know, I was just reading uh, Zeke Emanuel has one about which is the best health system in the world that mm-hmm. does a good job of talking about the strengths and weaknesses, you know, in the, where the U.S., uh has a lot of weaknesses uh but has you know big chance to to get better um
0: well we're working on a stuff you should know board game bill so we'll make sure the gates family gets one
1: fantastic <laughs> sure. i'd love that <laughs> maybe even signed all oh. right <laughs> chuck you got anything else
0: i got nothing else thanks a lot sir it's great talking to you again
1: Yep. Yeah, thank you bill but wait bill do you have anything else no
2: uh oh good <laughs> Uh, okay, you know, cool. thanks for uh, feeding people's curiosity you guys do a great job
1: hey well thank you for saving the world you're <laughs> doing a great job too well since we just made Bill Gates laugh that's it for short stuff everybody short stuff is out
0: stuff you should know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works for more podcasts from iHeartRadio visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows